0: Okay, we can let the uh, children be dismissed to uh, junior church. I'm still dealing with the end of my cold that I started three weeks ago or something like that, so just forgive me if I sniffle a little bit. I want you to turn to the uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. I want to finish the uh, discussion that we started two weeks ago. The challenge very simply is this, to us as believers, we should not be people who hypothetically ask what would Jesus do, but we should be people who find out what Jesus did and commit our lives to doing the same thing. And this passage of Scripture that we started looking at is a great spiritual thermometer to check our spiritual temperature to see whether our hearts have grown cold towards the work and the life that Christ has called us to. I began two weeks ago by asking What is the disciple's question? And if you're taking notes, I have this definition on your uh, notes in the bulletin. The disciple's question is this. What must I do in my current situation to be a follower of Christ? What did Jesus do when he found himself in circumstances similar to the ones that I find myself in today in my life? How did he respond? How did he act? What did he do? And when I find out what he did, a disciple will always go and do what Jesus did. And that's the call that I desire to lay out to you as we begin this new year that we as a church should be characterized by doing everything that Jesus did. And ultimately that means this. That means that every Christian in this church should be committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. A word, the word disciple simply means this. It means to be a learner and an imitator. It is somebody who discovers what Jesus did And does what Jesus did. The text that we're looking at begins with the failure of the Apostle Peter. To embrace all that God had called the Savior to do. Not only in his understanding of the life of Christ. But also in his personal experience. He had a struggle that is similar to the struggle that you and I face on a daily basis. He was deeply attached to the blessings of the temporal realm. He was captivated by what it would mean to be free as Israel, as a nation from the Roman government. That thought was the dominant thought in his mind. The underlying thought in his mind was, how can I follow Christ? But the dominant thought that was controlling his life at this time is how can I have Jesus and my life as I want it to be? That was Peter's struggle. In response to that struggle, Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, get out of my way. You are, verse 23, holding in your mind the things of men and not the things of God. And then he looks at the rest of the disciples, and we watched this transition last time, beginning of verse 23, Jesus said to Peter, verse 24, then Jesus said to the disciples, which is how the message then broadens out in application to every follower of Christ. There are commitments, there are decisions that precede Tim Hoff being a devoted follower of Christ. There are choices that I need to make in my Christian experience if I'm going to say I am really a follower of Jesus. We unpacked two of those decisions last week as they arise out of verse 24. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after, the word literally here is, be a follower, a disciple, a learner. He must, we looked at two steps, He must deny Himself and take up His cross. And what we're going to look at this morning is the third step, He must follow me. In our discussion last time, we said that the first step of following Christ, the prerequisite decision to being a disciple is, I must deny myself, that is a decision to surrender all of my life to Christ. It is a decisive and always life-altering choice. To say goodbye to my desires, my plans, to submit them to the authority of Christ. And to embrace His plan for my life. The second thought that He gives is, take up your cross. Which is a decision to take risk for the sake of obeying Christ. Take up the cross. Take up the symbol of a brutal self-execution. Take up the symbol that says, God, my life is so fully devoted that I am ready to renounce myself and ready to die a shameful death so I can be your follower. We looked at the fact in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus says that that taking up of the cross is to be a daily decision for every follower. You know what that means? It means Tim Hoff took up the cross at a certain point in his life. I can remember one time when I did this decisively, which I told you about last time. When I was 21 years old, I said goodbye to my agenda and said yes to God, and I took up the cross. But you know what? I have a tendency to do something. I have a tendency to want to offload the burden occasionally in my life. And so in Luke, Jesus adds a word. If you're going to follow me, you need to say goodbye to yourself. Then shoulder the cross daily. And folks, this is when you wake up in the morning, this is the battle that you must face. Will I live this life today for Christ? Or will I take up my own purposes? Will I shoulder the symbol of self-renunciation? Or will I embrace my plans, my desires, my happiness on this given day? And if you can cultivate in your heart a, an intentional decision-making process each morning, ask yourself the question, who are you going to live for today? Are you going to take up that cross? Are you going to take up your personal agenda? Which is it going to be? Because Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must say goodbye to yourself. And you must shoulder the symbol of self-rejection. Then you can be free to take this third step that I want to come to this morning. And I, and I I want to set this up in the terms that Jesus is setting it up in. It's a then and only then. After you have addressed the issue of self-surrender and taken up the thought of risking all for Christ. Because here's what happens. You can go to Christ and say, Christ, I give you my life, no matter what that means. And then you find yourself in a circumstance in which that risk-taking takes on definition. It becomes clear what it's going to cost you to follow Christ. And it's not always clear long-term what it's going to cost you to be a follower of Jesus. You make a decision in the past that Lord, no matter what comes up down the road tomorrow, in the month of June this year, no matter what comes up, I am devoted to following You. I have said goodbye to myself and I will shoulder my cross on that day. Then you get to that day and the cross takes on a certain mysterious sort of weight or sacrifice. And you've got to wrestle with the question again. Will I deny myself and take up the cross in this situation? So that I can then really be A man, a woman, a young person who follows Jesus. So what you need to do is first come to the big decision that then will be worked out on a daily basis in your life. So in Matthew 16, the statement is take up your cross. In Luke, it's take it up every day. Because that cross is going to look different every day of your life. The circumstances that you face on a daily basis, the challenges that God will allow to come onto your plate as a Christian are going to change and you're going to have to reckon with God's definition for risk taking from day to day. Because the circumstances will be different. It may, mean, it may mean staying in a difficult marital relationship where you sacrifice over and over and over again. Because that's your cross. It may mean sharing the gospel with someone who you know is going to be hostile to the message of Christ. Will you take up your cross? For a young person, it may be saying, you know what, I can't go to that event. Because that would dishonor my savior. You wrestle with rejection with what people will think. You wrestle with relationships, that if you break them off, what are people going to think? Because the cross takes on unique definitions from day to day. Every person in the work world knows this. Everyone knows this in their relationships, that the nature of sacrifice from day- to day changes, but the fact of sacrifice remains day to day for those who want to get in line with the Savior and begin to follow. Him. Take up the cross, A decision to risk. The last thought in this passage that I want us to focus in on today is this. Follow me. Follow me. Notice how he sets it up. If anyone's going to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up the cross, and then on a habitual or on a consistent basis, make daily decisions to do what Jesus did. Now, you may ask me this question. How do I know what Jesus did? And I'm going to be very simplistic in my answer. It will be this. It will be a daily choice to observe the life of Christ. i say, Tim, how do I do that? It's very simple. Commit yourself to a habit of exposing your life to the Word of God. If you're going to do what Jesus did, you have to know what He did. You have to take time to study His life. So study his interactions with people. Study his sacrifice. Study his love. Study his forgiveness. And go and do what he did. Study how he reached out to people that everybody else pushed into the margins of their life. And he went out there and spent time with them. Find out what he did. And in your daily experience, go and do what he did. It's going to mean a choice to observe, to study the life of Jesus. I want to make for you two brief observations from the life of Christ. Here's what Jesus did. And it it emerges out of this text. He chose 12 disciples and he was with them modeling and sharing God's truth. Let's see, what did he choose? He chose relationships. He chose to Work out his Christian experience, his life of obedience in in a context where others could observe his life. It wasn't an isolated life. It was a life lived in community. That's what Jesus did. And secondly, it will be this. It will be a choice to obey. If I'm going to follow Christ, I have to observe his life and then make decisions based on that observation to do in my daily experience exactly what Jesus would do if he was in that situation. So I constantly ask that disciple's question. What do I need to do in this situation to follow Jesus? Because the disciple watches and learns and goes out and imitates the life of Christ. Now you may say to me, Pastor Tim, how am I supposed to do that? You may say this morning, Pastor Tim, I've been trying to do that. And I'm finding myself a man, a woman, a young person who falls down, who fails. Is there help? This morning I'm going to give you glorious truth out of John chapter 14 and verse 26. And I'll just quickly read this passage of Scripture for you. John 14 and verse 26. It says this, Jesus preparing to leave His disciples says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in My name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Now folks, what that means is this. You wake up tomorrow morning and you say, okay, Lord, show me what you did and give me the courage to do it. And in your flesh, you're going to sense a weakness because it's a life of risk and surrender. And you're going to say, how can I follow him in this circumstance where I don't have a capacity or I don't have the insight to follow him? The words of Jesus Christ are very simple. For every born-again believer, you have an internal witness to the purposes of God. You have an internal director to the purposes of God. We recently purchased for one of my daughters something called a GPS, which most of you know what that means. They're, I think, Garmins and Tom-Toms and a number of other brands. GPS is a wonderful thing if you listen to it. I've had one of them in my car, and it wasn't real helpful. I'm talking away and it's going off. It's saying what to do. And guess what? In my preoccupation with whatever it is that I'm doing or thinking or singing or saying, I miss the message. Those things are really helpful if you listen to them. Now, we were driving to uh, Boston. I think it was after New Year's Day. Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving. We had one of those things on in our car. I said to my wife, whatever that thing tells you to do, you do it. I fell asleep. It took us in a completely different direction. Got us in a two-hour traffic jam. Then after we got through the traffic jam, it started giving directions again. And here's my wisdom is, you know what, honey, just ignore that thing. It got us in trouble already. And uh, so I kept trying to find a better route. And there wasn't a better route. Called my brother-in-law and said, hey, we need some help. He said, well, I thought you had the global positioning thing with you. And I said, we do, but I'm not, I haven't been listening to it. He says, is that in a female voice? (laughs) I said, yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, he said, I I figured that in your case. Um, Listen, God, in His mercy, calls us to a difficult life, but He doesn't leave us without help and without a verbal prompt internally. Galatians 5.16 says this, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You know what? Every Christian I know wants to be free from patterns of sin in their life. Because that's what Jesus did. But sometimes we find ourselves failing to be the man or woman or young person that we know God wants us to be. Why? Because we're ignoring the internal voice of God through His Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 26 says this, Keep in step with the Spirit. So Jesus calls you to a life of sacrifice, and you're thinking, I'm going to do that. And then you wake up and you start your day and you said, I don't know if I want to do that. And you need to listen to the internal prompting of the Spirit of God in your heart who is saying, not this, but this. Don't talk to your wife like that. Talk to her like this. Look, what determines whether I follow Christ is not a decision to do that somewhere in the past. It is a daily decision to find out what He did and to do it every time the Spirit of God prompts you in your heart. And if you know him, you know the voice. You know the prompting. You know the compulsion. Talk to that person. Share the gospel with this person. I had this happen to me on uh, Wednesday. I was flying out to be with Victor John for a quick one-day meeting with a missionary from Rwanda. Just to try to connect these two mission groups. I got to the airport late. I was totally embarrassed. I missed my flight to Philadelphia, which threw the whole timetable off for this trip. I was sitting on the floor, plugged my phone in because it was going dead too. Dinah, I heard you can relate to that. (laughs) All right. Plugged my phone in, and I'm trying to get up the courage to call Victor John and say, I'm not even going to make it on time. And in my self pity, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden in my heart, now what happened is they, they moved me forward to a flight two hours later. Okay. Now I'm sitting there thinking, That flight that I could have been on is getting ready to take off in 10 minutes and I'm sitting here and I'm getting mad and frustrated. I was angry at myself because I let myself push the timetable too tight, which I never do in any other circumstance in my life. Right, honey? And also, this was not audible, but the compulsion was clear. Get up. And run to that gate. Okay, pull out my phone, pull out all my stuff in my bag. and I You do, hate running through the airport. It's humiliating, right? Because you watched everybody else run through the airport and wonder what was their problem, right? Got through security. You know, it's hard to put your belt on when you're in a hurry. It's hard to tie your shoes when you're in a hurry. I'm flying through. They're getting ready to close the doors. I run up to that the, the little check-in booth at the gate. I slam my thing down. She said, sir, that's not for this flight. And I said, I know it's not. I said, but I had a ticket to be on this flight, and can you, any way you can help out a fool? Can you help me out? She said, get on the flight. Well, not knowing, I never scheduled my connecting flight to get out to Chicago. So I'm on the plane, I'm thinking everything's great. Listening, okay, I'm obeying, trying. Get to Philadelphia, get through the gate, get to the next gate. They're like, sir, you don't have a seat on this flight said, so I bid. She said, well, the flight's overbooked. And I'm like, oh. Now you're going to call. I'm trying to avoid the phone call to Victor. Okay, that's so what I'm trying to avoid in all this. I beg. He says, I'll put you on the waiting list. I get to the gate for the flight. It is full. They make an announcement. Five minutes before the flight leaves. Anybody want to get off the flight, we'll give you a free ticket to L.A.? couple comes off the plane, which released two of us to go on the plane to catch the flight. I've never sat by the exit door. We had the seat. There's no seat in front of you at the exit door. That's where I'm sitting. There's a delightful black lady and her friend sitting there coming home from the inauguration. I'm chit-chatting with them a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm saying to her, I said, I'm not supposed to be on this flight. I should not be here. And I wonder, well, God, why? Why am I on this flight? You prompted me back in Allentown. Here I am. I shouldn't be on this flight. You're saving me from huge embarrassment. And then they announce that if you're sitting next to the exit wing and you can't fulfill the duties, why don't you ask to be moved? She puts her hand up. They bring in this other man that sits in that chair. He looks at me, and I look at him, and I'm, I'm harried. He's a little harried. I said, I'm not supposed to be on this flight. He looks at me, and he says this. He said, you're here for a reason. I looked at him and I said, I know that. I'm a pastor. I know why I'm here, okay? God has a reason for me being here. That man, I, this was the most awesome thing, because through all this folly and stupidity on my part, I, that man and I engaged in conversation like this. Second question he asked me was this. He said, oh, do you travel much? And I said, not really. I said, occasionally I go to India, but that's, that's about it. He said, do you work with children? like underprivileged children in India. I said, as a matter of fact, we do. The long and short of it was, the, this guy is starting a multi-million dollar corporation in America, printing educational cards. Like, you know, like the Pokemon cards and all those different game cards? He said, I'll, he said, I'll get them printed in India. He said, my, by the way, my printer is in Delhi, India. He said, I'll print them up and I'll send them to you guys for free, as many as you want, to give out to the schools, to give out... A, I'm sitting there, I'm saying, I am here for a reason, well, that was that discussion went on for about an hour, telling me about this whole thing that God is, that he's launching. I said, I got a witness to this guy now, because you know that voice too, right? You can't drop this here, this is not about education. I said, well, would you print those cards, like, with the gospel, like, with stories about Jesus? He's like, yeah, we'd love to do that, would be great. He says, I have, he has 10 graphic artists he's hired that, li- that live in LA, he lives in Chicago. End result was got to get into the gospel with this man, which was blowing me away. And he just unfolded for me how God has been working in his turning away from God, and that he, he said, you were here for a reason. I looked at him and I said this. I said, the only reason I'm here is, number one, because I'm stupid. and I, I, I'd miss any flight. I have more problems when I try to fly. My eighty there goes a rabbit, kicks in. Like flaming. And I'm sitting on that floor in that airport. I'm just like, I just got this get up and go to your go to your plane. Okay. And all all I'm saying is this. When I told Victor John this, he said, Tim, last night I was praying that God would give away that we could do something more effective with the railroad children. And when I told him this, he would start crying. He was just like blown away. And I pray that God will work in this guy. His name is uh, Todd Ferguson. He's the president of a company called Professor Brainstorm. If you want to go online and look at his website, it'll blow you away. When I went on, I was like, wow, well, this guy's like the real deal. Pray that God will work through that prompting to bring out His badest purpose. Now, here's the confession I have for you. I listened to God in that circumstance. I can't tell you how many times I ignore. You know, I, it wasn't audible, but it was clear. Get up and go. If you're going to follow Jesus, here's what you need to do. You need to commit to observing His life. And every time He prompts you to go and do what He would do, do it. Observe His life. Follow His example. Because that will lead you to the life of greatest joy. Al and Peggy Horton are with us this morning. Uh, Two years ago, Al, God prompted you through a sermon by a pastor in Texas to not retire... And to give your life to missions. You know what I would say about you and Peggy? You're like the saddest people I've ever met. You know, I'm totally kidding, right? These two are beaming with joy because they said yes to God. They looked at what, you know what Jesus did. He gave everything. Retirement wasn't in the plan. Sacrifice was. And our church and the church in China and many other churches are being blessed because He was Foolish enough to listen to Christ and do what he did. And when he prompted him to give up retirement in the lovely land of Phoenix, Arizona, which I would love to be there right now. It was 8 degrees when I drove to my office this morning. Phoenix is better than that. He said no to that. And guess what God has brought? Through the pain of making that decision and sacrifice, God brings a joy that super abounds. You know what? Living in Phoenix is fun. It brings a lot of joy serving God in China, sleeping on concrete, you know, sleeping in trains for 24 hours brings greater joy. Now I know that in the equation that doesn't make sense. On my flight home from Texas, when I was at the board meeting last weekend on Sunday, sat beside a guy named Brad. He's a Merrill Lynch broker, very very successful young man. At the end of the conversation, I was like, "You are so smart. What was your SAT score?" He said, 1570. I said, mine was 1580. He looked at me and he said, you had to beat me, didn't you? I said, I am totally kidding. <laughs> 15, I, I could just tell. We got, we got talking, and here's how the conversation opened up. In his office, he has a Christian man. And he, he knew I was like a Bible-believing Christian, but he thought I was more of the savvy, nuanced type, okay, that, had, that doesn't go out and do stupid things, okay? So he starts going off. Okay, not knowing, he's describing me. And I can't wait to tell him he is, okay? He says, oh, he says, yeah, he says, "Uh, you know, I I got some Christians around me too. And he says, we get this guy in the office. He travels to dangerous places to tell people about Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is the only way. I said, what kind of place? He said, like, over to the Middle East. He said, he's, I can't believe somebody would take that kind of risk. He's a man who has a family. Why would he take that kind of risk? I looked at him and I said, I've done the same thing. I said, I've been to India three times. Been to areas that are dangerous. I said, we don't look at it that way. We don't look at it like it's a dramatic risk that if you calculate it out, it can't work out to the positive. He, did, he could not. And this guy was brilliant. He could not grasp why his coworker, his coworker goes to Iraq. So let me tell you something up front, brother. I said, my trips to India do not in any way compare to Iraq. I said, I have a pastor friend. A pastor uh, used to be a First Baptist in uh, Belvedere. Uh, Kirk DeVitro. Some of you might remember his name. Neat guy. Brilliant. PhD. He was in Iraq about two years after the collapse of the Saddam Hussein regime. Their car was shot. The pastor sitting beside him had his life taken like that. They didn't resist or resent the sacrifice. God called them to go and they said, okay, we're going to go. For this young man, Brad, I had an a opportunity, wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with him too, of God's grace. Why? Because somebody in his office is really doing what Jesus did. Not always calculating it out, checking with you know, the transportation department of the United States to find out if it's safe and risk-free to go somewhere to do what Jesus did. But someone who's willing to say, you know what, we're going to go do it. We're going to go follow Christ. If that means sacrifice, that's fine. Folks, that is what Jesus did. Now here's the thing that fascinates me about this text. Jesus is not talking about some hypothetical experience of taking up the cross. It for him becomes the reality. It is in fact what he did. He denied himself. Philippians 2 said, he left the glories of heaven. He didn't grasp it equality with God as a personal treasure. He set it aside and he came. Self-denial. Then, when Father called him to go to the cross, what did he do? He said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Risk taking in full surrender. After the garden, what does he do? He takes up the cross, the instrument that will take his life. and he goes through to the end. But you read the rest of the chapter in Philippians 2. After he had humbled himself. After he took on human form so that he could die in that body. After he was crucified and buried, he rose again. And what happens? Verse 10 This is where the calculation gets weird from a human perspective. In verse 10 it says, Therefore, Father has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what, folks? That follows risk. That follows sacrifice. That follows full surrender. And then, shouldering the cross in spite of how difficult it is. Because there is a cause greater than my success. There is a cause greater than my retirement there is a cause greater than my children's education, and that is the cause of Christ. Now, it's not that the other things don't matter to me and that I'm not planning for them, but they cannot be, for the follower of Christ, the dominant pursuit of their life. Because if I have those things as the dominant pursuit of my life, I will find in the end of my life, I have lived for something that I cannot take with me. And that is the odd irony, isn't it? So you have this call to radical sacrifice, and you start thinking, what would motivate someone to do something like that? Well, let's first ask this question. What would keep me from such sacrifice? What would keep me from a radical, self-denial, risk-taking following of Jesus? What would stop that in the life of someone who knows that that brings such great joy in your life? What would keep me from it? Jesus is wise. And in verse 25, He says this, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. I want to tell you something. That is my struggle. You know what I want to do? I want to save my life. I want to have the life that Tim Hoff has always imagined he would have. That's what I want. I want the material perks of my flesh. I want my kids to have the best of things. But I can't find justification for that when I look at the life of Christ. That's the tension as a Christian that you will live with when your priorities get out of whack. You're going to read the text and say, I am not being a follower of Christ. Because what he said is, whoever wants, to say, whoever wants to get the most out of their life. And I'm sure, Alan Peggy, the reason you guys were planning to go to Phoenix, Arizona, is you were confident that when you got there, you would get a nice house and have a nice life. Am I correct? Okay. You know what? That's what all of us want. Okay? We want that. We want to ultimately be able to unplug and Relax. We want to save our life. We want to maintain a lifestyle that we think will give us satisfaction and pleasure. I want to give you this challenge. Ask people in that setting if they're really happy. Ask them if they really have contentment and joy and purpose in their life. Folks, there's very little joy in life apart from sacrifice. Very little joy. And I would argue this morning that the thing that keeps us from doing what Jesus did is found in verse 25. It is a preoccupation with temporal things, which Jesus in his wisdom goes directly after in verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? Now look, folks, I'm living for a lot less than that. Okay, just be very honest. My desire is for a lot less than that, and I think that little bit will satisfy. Jesus says, let's, let's go macro. If you gained the whole world, if you became the wealthiest person on the planet, if you controlled the whole thing, and you die, what benefit will it be? If I walked up to Jake Adams today and said, Jake, I have a three million dollar check in my hand. I'm gonna give you this check. Here's the key. You can have it if you sign it. But when you sign it, you die. Okay? You can have this check. When you authorize it to be deposited in your bank account, you die. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Two weeks ago, I went into my office and I turned on my computer. The webpage that I look at for news comes up, and I have this picture on my screen of the biggest oil hauling ship in the world. It's on its maiden voyage, and it is taken by Somalian pirates. All right, they have it captive. I, I, it's, it's months that this thing is being held. Brand new. Beautiful. See the aerial shot? It is beautiful. It looks like a tennis court from the air. Absolutely beautiful ship. They finally negotiate the ransom down to $3 million that is airdropped onto the cargo ship by a passing plane. Five of the Somalian men, who are the pirates, go out to capture the loot, the bag. And here's the way that the news writer says it. Five Somali pirates drowned when a wave washed them off their getaway boat as they squabbled over and over about how to split the $3 million ransom. I think that is, I read that and I said, God, don't let me be one of them. Don't let me be the man, the dad, who squanders his life, squabbling over, trying to get something that when I die, it is meaningless. Those men, in my estimation, are sorry fools. And it's easy to look at them and say, how stupid. But please look in the mirror. Please look in the mirror. And ask yourself this question. Have I signed the check? Have I given up what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ so that I can have perks that will not matter? The sad irony is captured in the book of Proverbs. Where the Word of God says, in terms of possessions, surely they make wings and fly. The rich man dies, but his wealth does not, cannot follow him to the grave. Folks, do you see the challenge we face? The life that we want versus the life that God wants. The the way of saving my life, while Jesus says losing it but the one who loses his life, which clearly becomes a reference back to what? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what it is to put your life on the line on a daily basis. Say, God, I'm going to listen for the prompting of your spirit, your internal compass, your GPS, God's personal spirit. Okay, there's a good thing to use for that. I'm going to listen. Listen. I'm going to trust that when I'm sitting in my pit of sorrow, you know, plugged in with my cell phone by an outlet because it's about to die and I'm all complaining about how I missed the flight and if that person hadn't walked into my office and been talking to me, I wouldn't have been late. And then God speaks. He says, go do this. And you say, okay, God, I'm going to do it. And God begins to work in our lives. Folks, the key is this. Well, listen to the internal prompting of his spirit. The Apostle Paul put it in this way, Philippians 1.20. He said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Friend, this morning, ask yourself the question, could I receive a terminal diagnosis tomorrow morning and be okay? Could I? Or would it break my heart and shatter my world because I've built it here? Or am I so connected to following Christ that to die as it was for Paul is gain. You know why? Here's what Paul said. Because to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Romans 8, Paul says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can any cross born in the life of a believer separate them from the love of Christ? One writer responds with this. The love of Christ is life's greatest treasure. Folks, let me ask you this question. If you could have heaven without Jesus, would you want it? Would you want it? Would you want heaven if Jesus wasn't there? That's a challenge that flipped my world a couple months ago. But I don't even know how to answer that question. Here's the way one writer put Romans eight thirty eight. He said, The love of Christ is life's greatest treasure, and it lurks on the far side of every trial and risk. The love of Christ is life's greatest treasure, and it lurks on the far side of every self-denial, of every sacrifice, of every surrender, of every risk, of every cross. On the far side is the love of Christ for those that know Him. And that's why Paul says, hey, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can pearl? Can death? Can suffering? Can persecution? He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who, what? Loved us. But folks, the key to surrender is this. It's realizing that the temporal things that I'm clinging to aren't going to matter at some point in my life. My capacity to enjoy them is going to diminish. I thought of this walking through the airport uh, on, uh, on Friday or Thursday night. Watching older people who were coming near the end of their life In my heart, here's what I felt. I felt a sadness. I saw people struggling to get on the plane to get to their retirement destination, probably in many of the cases, because they're typical Americans. It broke my heart. Trying to get their bags together so they can go home and tell everybody about where they've been. Reminded me of John Piper's book, Uh, Don't Waste Your Life is the title of it. On the back of that book, he puts a brief, brief paragraph about American retirement. And in that brief account on the back of that book, he says this. He said, I want you to imagine two different people. A retired couple, standard U.S. couple that had good pensions and was able to retire to Florida to collect seashells. They die and they stand before God. And what do they have to show for their life? A seashell collection. Here's what I thought of. I thought of Al and Peggy Horton. I thought of Victor John. I thought of Jim Elliot and his four brothers who died reaching to the Akua Indians. And I want to say to them, just on the far side of your risk is the love of God. That nothing can keep you from. And folks, my challenge to us as a church this year is going to be something along these lines. If we're going to commit to doing what Jesus did, it's going to require radical risk-taking. It's going to require an adjustment of the use of our financial resources. It's going to require an adjustment in relationship to how we use our time, how we view the home that we live in. Will we open these things up? Will we use our lives for the glory of God? Because this passage says very clearly in verse 27, and I just you've got to look, what, what will someone give in exchange for their soul? I would say to Jake, would you sign the check if it was going to cost you your life to have the $3 million? The answer is unequivocally, no. Why would someone sign that? But we do. We do. Here's what Jesus says. After saying that, what would someone give any shit? Why would you live for stuff? For the Son of Man is going to come. Folks, do you realize one day Christ is going to come and the economic structure of this world will be corrected? Corrected. The price tags will be put back where they belong because Satan has surely switched them. The Son of Man is going to come. And when they heard that, you know what they heard? They heard Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, who is seated on a throne, who is the supreme ruler of the universe. He's going to come in His Father's glory with all of His angels. And then, listen to this, He will reward each person according to what He has done. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I know that in three verses prior to that, he said this. If you're going to follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Give all. And on the far side of that will be my personal presence and pleasure forevermore. Psalm 1611. The psalmist looking at his own death says, In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. Pleasures forevermore. You want the check that I gave to Jake? You sign it, You die. You sign this contract with Christ, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow him. And on the far side of whatever that means, because you don't know, on the far side of whatever that means is the love of God for eternity and for now. Let's bow our heads together this morning.